Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go sell what you own and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. The Ainsley family, a few years back, uh, we moved. Uh, Casey and I sold our townhouse that we got right after we got married, and so we moved over, uh, over off Tiny Road, and I think some of you were there. So thanks again. I know when you ask someone to help you move, you spend a lot of relational capital. You know, <laughs> you, you, they don't really want to do it, but they'll do it uh, because they care about you, or you guilt them in, or you bribe them with pizza, uh, whatever it is. So we're moving all our stuff in as one does, and my wife has this dresser. Well, I, I guess it's mine now too, right? The whole one flesh thing, but. Uh, there might be some dispute on that, uh, but she had it before we were married, and uh, it's a beautiful dresser. It's a large dresser. It's seven feet. I think it's over seven feet long, solid wood, and so this is a dresser that was going to go uh, in our bedroom, and so we're trying to take this thing upstairs, and if you've seen our house, uh, you walk through the front door, And you have to make a 90-degree turn to get on this landing, which is the first step. And then you make another 90-degree turn to go up a very narrow, steep staircase. Long story short, I mean, we tried every angle. Yes, moving experts in here. You know, we tried to stand it up on its side on the landing and then tip it forward. I mean, it it wasn't going to happen. I mean, we called MIT. We got an engineer. We consult. $200 $200 an hour. It just was not going to fit. We were not going to be able to shove the camel through the eye of the needle. Today's gospel, uh, the account is known as the rich young ruler. And while Mark's gospel, if you notice in your service booklet, it doesn't mention that he's young or a ruler, but the other gospels do. So they put it all together. It's the same account of the rich young ruler. Now, in, um, he comes up to him, the rich young ruler approaches Jesus uh, with, with deference, and he asks him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, in context, he, he's not asking, what do I have to do uh, so that when I die, I go to heaven? To a Jew living in the first century, this would have meant more pointedly The life of the age to come, that blessed age that they were waiting for, that the Messiah was going to uh, usher in, the renewal of the covenant, the renewal of God's people, that day when the rule and reign of God would come fully and finally on earth as in heaven. When Jesus responds to this question, he says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Now, on the surface, it seems like an odd thing for Jesus to say, because Jesus is God in the flesh. He's the one who, as we read in the epistle, suffered every way that we've suffered, been tempted every way we've been tempted, yet without sin. What is Jesus doing? Jesus here is not denying his own goodness and divinity, but rather revealing them. He's trying to move the conversation to, I'm not just a good teacher. And to say 
to, if you are going to call me good in the way in which you are, you better be calling me God. Also, his response, it's pedagogical. He's, he's teaching something. It's revealing something about the human condition that none of us are good in and of ourselves. None of us are good in and of ourselves. That's, that doesn't mean that a person cannot be good, but rather that a person is only good insofar as he or she participates in God who is the source of all goodness. It's God in our relationship with him and ultimately what he did through his son, Jesus Christ, and his shed blood on the cross that we can be brought to a place of transformation and goodness and God-likeness. Jesus then proceeds to list many of what we call the Ten Commandments. Without faithfulness to the covenant, how could any good Jew express, expect the blessings thereof, namely participation in the blessed age to come? So Jesus begins listing the commandments. Okay. Are, are you living as if you're already inhabiting the age to come? Let's see. And what is most noteworthy about Jesus' list is not the commandments that he includes, but the ones he omits. The first four commandments. You shall, number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Two, you shall not make idols. Three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Four, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. The first four commandments are focused solely on love of God. The last six commandments are focused on love of neighbor. All of which Jesus lists, except number 10, you shall not covet. It's telling the ones that Jesus omits. The rich young ruler in response to Jesus says, all of these I've kept from my youth. And this I think he says in good conscience. In other words, he's telling the truth. Because if you look in the text, Jesus accepts and tacitly affirms the man's confession of fidelity to the law of Moses, particularly the laws listed. But then Jesus, in his demand to go sell all that you have, he gets at the heart of the law and calls, calls this man to fidelity to the law giver. The first four commandments are love God. The second six are love people. Does that remind you of anything that maybe I, I just quoted from Scripture not a few seconds ago? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. They're signposts of this is how we love God and one another. But the, the object of our love is God. And then the first commandment, which I think this is really the commandment in which this man was in violation of. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. So the rich young ruler, I would argue, he loved God in some measure, 
But he loved this world, particularly his wealth, more. And no man, no woman, can serve two masters. Wealth can be an obstacle to sharing in God's life. St. Augustine writes this, he says, Such, O my soul, are the miseries that attend on riches. They are gained with toil and kept with fear. They are enjoyed with danger and lost with grief. It is hard to be saved if we have them, and impossible if we love them. And scarcely can we have them, but we shall love them inordinately. Teach us, O Lord, this difficult lesson to manage conscientiously the goods we possess and not covetously desire more than you give to us. Our gospel says that the disciples were perplexed. They're seeing this go down. Jesus is making these comments about the difficulty for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, and they are perplexed. They're stunned by the teaching of Jesus. And for good reason. I mean, the assumption in ancient Israel and really throughout the ancient world would be that wealth, material blessing, is a sign of divine favor. And this way of thinking, this assumption which the disciples no doubt were operating under, it is not without um, some founding. In fact, rooted in the law of Moses, rooted in the wisdom literature, think of a book like Proverbs, that teaches that living according to God's covenant, living according to his ways, living wisely will result in material and temporal blessings, at least in general. Moreover, Jesus is saying this, perhaps the disciples were thinking about the patriarchs. Many of the Old Testament saints were very, very wealthy, namely Abraham, the, the great kings of Israel, David, and his son Solomon. So it's not that the rich can't be saved. It's the danger that Jesus is pointing out. The attachment, it's this principle, that attachment to and love of things temporal and fleeting detaches us from the things eternal, from the things of God. So wealth, as we see in the teaching of Jesus and in the teaching throughout Scripture, throughout the history of the church, it can be a serious obstacle blocking the narrow road which leads to life. But it's not the only obstacle. It's not the only obstacle. So if you're here and you don't have a lot, you're here and you didn't grow up with much, don't go, okay, I'm pretty poor. I'm living paycheck to paycheck, so I can kind of take a week off. Anything that we love more than God, anything that we want to hold on in lieu of God is an obstacle, an idol. So imagine for a moment that instead of the rich young ruler speaking with Jesus, it's you. And this is actually an ancient ascetical practice. This is an ancient meditative way 
of reading scripture, of praying. To compose a scene from scripture, particularly to compose a scene from the gospels, and to put yourself in the middle of that scene. And not to put yourself in the middle of that scene always as the hero, but oftentimes as the perpetrator. So imagine it's you speaking with Jesus. What do you think he would ask you to quote-unquote sell? What are you holding on to that's preventing you from being a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ? What do you need to lose in your life so that you can find the life of the age to come? Well, perhaps the quickest and most effective way to answer that is to ask the question, what's the one thing that I wouldn't want Jesus to ask me to sell? It's important to note that Jesus loved the rich young ruler after he's done speaking, what does the text say? That Jesus looked at him, and he loved him. And in love, he calls him unto himself. In his love, he demanded all. Perhaps you've heard the saying that God loves us as we are. Thank God that he does, right? There can be, not any of you, but I'll speak for myself, at times I'm unlovable. God loves us as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us as we are. You see, God does not force himself upon us. Therefore, this, this call, this surrender of the will that Jesus asked for all of us. The surrender of the will on our part is key. To say yes to Jesus. To be willing for the old self to die and for a new life to spring forth. So if we cooperate with grace in this way. Because it's God making the initiative. It's God calling us to himself. So if we sell all that we have, that meaning we're, we're surrendered, we come to a place where at least, not that we're living it, because the vast majority of us, we, we, there's areas where we still try to hold on to our life. But it's at least coming to that place where we can take seriously something like Colossians 3 where it says, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When you can come to that place in your heart of hearts when you can say, I am not my own. So when we die to this world and if we, like the disciples, 
leave everything behind to follow Jesus, what is it that we will gain? What will be our reward? Well, Jesus says something perhaps surprising. You have to read it carefully. He says that we will receive a hundredfold now in this age. That is in this life. He listed off houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children, and fields, and I love how Mark throws this in, with persecutions. <laughs> You're getting really excited. Oh, yeah, it's going to be good, but it's going to be tough. And then, of course, he says, and then the age to come, eternal life. So what is Jesus saying? He is saying that we may very well receive blessings Though, even if we are blessed in this life, we've got a nice house, we've got, uh, we're healthy, things are, are, are going well, it's not going to be without opposition. Because like we talked about last week, St. Michael and all angels, there's a battle which, in which we are entrenched. And if we follow Jesus, if we live the way that he calls us to do, there's going to be opposition. There's going to be that pressure from the world. But more pointedly, what he's saying is that we will experience the hospitality of God's family. Of what it means to be a son or daughter of God within the church. And that's why he can say you're going to gain brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers a hundredfold. There's a worldwide family into which you enter. Now, Jesus' teaching here, uh, like elsewhere in the Gospels, or in Luke, he says it even more pointedly. He says we, we ought to hate our family. Well, this is not giving license to hatred. Jesus, what he's saying here, is not giving license to neglect your natural family. But it's calling us to prioritize the eternal over the temporal, and to give solace to those, to give solace to those who, disciples of Jesus Christ who are rejected by their natural families on account of believing in Jesus, which we might not experience that here in this country, but there's Christians all over the world. You become a Christian, you're out. So Jesus promised this gaining of a spiritual family, this gaining of the blessed life of the church. So that's our reward. But our greatest reward, however, is Jesus himself. And he's calling us, brothers and sisters, as it were, upstairs to things heavenly. But so often, we're trying to have a foot in each world. We're trying to ascend the hill of the Lord while holding on to things earthly. We're trying to take the big dresser with us. And it just won't fit. It's got to stay downstairs. We can only bring things with us that are fit for the age to come. So brothers and sisters, may the word of God, which is Jesus, and the scriptures, which are the words of the word, if you will, 
May they pierce our hearts and bring us to repentance and faith. May we not walk away sorrowful from Jesus on account of our love for this world. But rather, may we throw ourselves at his feet and say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And when we do that, he will help us by the Holy Spirit to walk with him, to learn to live in the way in which he called us so that we can persevere in fellowship with Jesus and at the last day, inherit that life eternal, inherit that blessed age to come. Amen.